turn to 1 Kings chapter 3 and then put a marker at Luke chapter 14. In other words, we're going to begin at 1 Kings chapter 3. We'll go through many, many scriptures on the PowerPoint, as we always do. And then toward the end of the message, we'll go to Luke chapter 14. And I normally only ask you to turn to two passages because we do have so many, but that kind of helps for us to be able to get to all of them. And I want you to bring your Bibles to church. I want you to see it in your Bibles. So those are the two passages this week. 1 Kings chapter 3. If you'll open your Bible to that one. 1 Kings chapter 3. Let me, um, I'll help you just a little bit. That is um, page 302. <laughs> and uh, then if you'll put a marker at Luke chapter 14. Uh, I, I'm a bottom line type person. Um, now, if you don't know if you're a bottom line type person or not, you're not. Let me just help you with that, all right? <laughs> if you think you're a bottom line type person, but you're not for sure, you're a beat around the bush person. And these are the two types of people that are in, in the world. They're bottom line type people and beat around the bush people, uh, in my opinion, humble opinion. There are, uh, there are people who are on time that when a meeting starts at, you know, um, 10 o'clock, then they think you have to leave before 10 o'clock to get there at 10 o'clock. There are other people who think when it starts at 10, if you leave at 10, you'll just be automatically transported there and you'll be on time. So there are on-time people and not on-time people. Anyway, um, a bottom-line type person wants to know what's the point. Well, get, to the, get to the point of the conversation, please. For God's sake, get to the point of the conversation quickly. Uh, that's the way a bottom-line type person is. So in my relationship with the Lord, uh, he, he always gets to the bottom line, and I'm grateful for that. But when I study and when I read Scripture, I want to know what the bottom line is. And I want to know for, for me, you know, to be a Christian, do I have to do this and this and this and this and this and this and this? And, and, and I get real overwhelmed with details. And, and so I, I just need a few details, and that, that will help me. Give me the overall details. And the rest of those things, they'll just fall into place, you know. Uh, so in the same way, when I've approached Christianity, I've had to, to kind of boil it down to just a couple of things. And those two things I want to talk to you about today, and those two things are worship and witness. These are the two areas that I want to see God work in my life. I want to be an extravagant worshiper. I want to enter into His presence not just on Sundays, but every day of the week. I want to walk with God. I want to hear God. I want to talk to God. I want to commune with God. I, I want to know Him very, very well. But the other thing I want to do is I want to make Him known. I, I want to be an extreme witness everywhere I go, an extravagant worshiper and an extreme witness. Everywhere I go, I want to talk about Him. I want to share with I, I want to interject Him in every conversation I can get Him in, in an elevator, at a gas station, on the golf course, the grocery store, wherever I am, I, I'm, 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 I don't mean this wrong, uh, please don't take offense if you're in this business, but I, I want to be an Amway salesman for Jesus. You know, I, I want to have in the back of my mind, I met at the hospital the day, I met a guy who was in that business, and so he, he wanted to slip that in the conversation, and I, I picked that up pretty quickly, you know. But my, my thing is, I want to have Jesus in the back of my mind in every conversation. At some point, I want to get him into that conversation. Are you following me? So the way that I do that, though, is by being an extravagant worshiper, but also being an extreme witness. 
there's a something in Scripture, a principle that runs all through Scripture that these two things are in this principle. And I'm only going to show you a few Scriptures on this. You can find many more Scriptures on what I'm going to show you today. We're going to start with 1 Kings chapter 3. And let me give you a little background information before we read this. This is the place where God said to Solomon, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Anything you want, you ask and I'll give it to you. And we all know what Solomon asked for. Solomon asked for wisdom. But do we know why he asked for wisdom? He actually gives the reason before he asks for wisdom. And I think it's important to know the reason that he asked for wisdom. So, First Kings chapter 3, begin in verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said to him, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to set on his throne as it is to this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but, this is a big but here, but I am a little child and I do not know how to go out or come in. And then he says, therefore, because of this reason, I need you to give me wisdom. Because I don't know how to do something that my father David knew how to do. I don't know how to go out and how to come in. Now, when I saw that in Scripture, it jumped off the page at me because I thought, you know, this. Well, what does this mean, how to come in and how to go out? I, I, I'm, I'm sharp, you know, I, I'm a sharp guy. And so when I saw that in Scripture, I, I thought to myself, I bet this is probably not talking about operating doorknobs. I, I bet that, that what Solomon was saying here was, I don't think he was saying, my father knew how to, to come in and go out of doors. And, and every time I walk around this big castle, I can never operate the doorknobs. If I could just do that, then I could be a, a great king like my father was a great king. I, I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think there's a, a, a principle here of coming in and going out that we need to explore in Scripture so that we understand what this principle is. Because Solomon said, I'll never be a good leader until I understand how to do these two things. And so that's what we want to look at. Uh, let me show you a few more scriptures that we're not going to turn to, but I want to show them to you. Numbers chapter 27 says, Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out, notice the two words, go out, before them, and go in or come in before them who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. Now, I want you to think about this. Moses is praying to God about his replacement. And he asked God for one thing. He said, God, when you give a, a new pastor that takes my place, I want him to be able to do one thing. I want him to know how to come in and how to go out. I want him to know how to bring the congregation in and how to lead the congregation out. That's what he needs to know. Same thing Solomon said. My father knew how to do it. If I'm going to be the shepherd, I need to know how to do it. Moses said, God, whatever you do, make sure my replacement knows how to do this right here. Make sure he knows how to come in and how to go out, how to bring people in and how to lead them out. And then when he's actually turning it over to to Joshua, this is what he says in Deuteronomy 31. Then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel, 
And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I can no longer go out and come in. In other words, he gives the reason for his retirement as this reason right here. The only reason that I'm turning the church over now, that I'm turning the, the leadership over to Joshua, is because I'm 120 and I, I can no longer come in and go out. If I could still come in and go out, if I could work those blasted doorknobs, no, that's not what he's talking about. If I could still come in and go out, then I'd still be your leader. But I can't anymore, so I'm going to set a man in. And God has assured me he knows how to do this. And he knows how to lead you in these two things. And this something? So I think we need to know what come in and go out refers to. Well, the, the key to it is found in Joshua chapter 14. Caleb is talking, and he's 80 years old, and he's talking about going into the promised land, and he tells us what these two terms refer to. Joshua chapter 14, verse 11 says, As yet I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength, here's the key, for war. Both for going out and for coming in. Coming in and going out were military terms. They refer to warfare. This is what Solomon was saying. My father knew how to take people out to war, and he knew how to bring them in from war. And that's the one thing that I don't know how to do. Moses said, this is the one thing my replacement needs to do. He needs to know how to lead the people out to war, but he also needs to know how to bring them in from war. And that's exactly what Caleb is saying here. I, I, my strength is the same. I'm now 80. It's the same as when I was 40. I'm just as strong today for war for coming in and for going out. Now, let's take these a little bit further. What does coming in and going out for war actually mean? Well, every time they would come in for war, let me tell you exactly what they would do. The first place they would go was to the temple or to the tabernacle. The first place when they came in for war, they'd go to the tabernacle and they'd thank God for the victory. They'd worship Him. But they not only did it when the war was over, they did it during the war. During the war, the leader of the war would say to certain segments, certain uh, of military men, you guys need a break. You need a rest. So they would go back to the to Jerusalem. They'd go back to the city. They'd go back in. And where they would go is to the tabernacle. And they would just spend a week in the presence of God. And they would worship Him and glorify Him and honor Him. And then they'd go back out refreshed for the battle. We even have instances in the Bible when men came in that they didn't even, they saw their family, but they didn't even sleep in their house. They'd sleep on the doorstep because they wanted to totally consecrate themselves to God so they'd have the strength for the war. Let me tell you something. We need to understand this principle of coming in. We need to understand coming into God's presence. And it's not just on the weekends. You need to come into God's presence every morning because I promise you, when you walk outside the door of your house, you're going to war. And you need the presence of God, and you need the strength of God in your life. This is a principle that every believer needs to understand, and it's called worshiping God. Not just singing a few songs, but entering His presence, and meditating on His Word, and listening to Him, and talking to Him, and being filled afresh with the Spirit of God every day. That's what coming in refers to. Coming in to God's presence. Let me tell you what going out refers to. Going out is not from His presence. Now listen to me carefully. We do not go out from His presence. We go out with His presence. See, He wants to go with us. 
Somehow we get the idea that we come to church and we meet with God, and when we leave, God stays here. And, and this is where Jesus lives. Jesus lives in this building. And, you know, it's, I don't know if um, the best illustration probably is I grew up for most of my life, I grew up in a church where the pastor would stand at the back door and greet everyone on the way out. How many of you have ever been to a church like that? Pastor stood at the back door. Okay. So he would stand at the back door and say, you know, thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. And we, he always at the back door. And we always went by because you wanted the pastor to see that you had been in church that day. See, that was real important because he had a direct line to God and he was, you know, taking attendance roles. So you wanted to make sure, I, I'm Robert, I'm Robert, I was here today. God bless you, pastor. You know, you go by. Unless we were mad at the pastor, then we went out the side door. And there were a few times that we didn't want to shake his hand. I, I, I don't know why, but I just remember as a child, it was the back door or the side door, depending on how we felt about that pastor, you know. So here's, I think we get this picture because as a little boy, the pastor was always at the back door. You know, God bless you, God bless you, thank you for coming. And then when the last person would leave, the pastor would close the doors. I thought that he lived in the church, you know, because when we leave, there he is in the church. Goodbye, God bless you. Closes the door. Next Sunday, he opens the doors up. Hey, good morning. Good morning. How you doing? And he welcomes us back in. He lived in the church. See, that's what I thought as a little boy. And somehow we get that picture of Jesus. That it's Jesus standing at the back door of the church saying, God bless you. Thank you for coming. Or I guess he would say, I bless you. I, not rather than God bless you. I, I bless you. I bless you. Bless you. Bless you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. You know, and we might say to him, hey, would you like to come out with us? Oh, no, I've already been out there for 33 years. <laughs> well, I don't want to go back out there. Thank you very much. Y'all go and have a good week. I hope you make it. And I'll be waiting right here in the safety of the church. When you get back next week, I'll be right here waiting for you, you know. That's not what God wants. He wants to go to work with us. He wants to go to school with us. He wants to go to the grocery store with us. He wants to go on vacation with us. He wants to go with us. God wants to go with us. We don't go out from His presence. We go out with His presence. And that's what gives us the power to face today. Now, but going, coming in refers to worship. What does going out refer to? Going out refers to witnessing. And let me tell you why. The reason that Israel went to war, and listen carefully to me, was to show the world that their God was the true God. That's what it was all about, people. That's exactly what it was about. See, the reason that God chose Israel was not because they were the best nation, not because they were the strongest nation. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 7, I chose you not because you were the greatest, but because you were the least. The, the reason God chose Israel is because it's the smallest nation in the world. In, in essence, he looked around the world and said, let me see if I can find a, a, a nation that's smaller than Rhode Island. And so he chose, that's why he didn't choose the nation of Texas, because we're too big. See, he wanted to choose a small nation. And here's the point. When the smallest nation in the world is the most powerful nation in the world, the whole world says, your God is the true God. How in the world could the smallest, smallest nation walk through the land and every big nation tremble in fear? Because they said they got the supernatural power with them. Their God's the true God. The problem was that many nations didn't still believe. They could have believed. If they'd have believed, it'd been wonderful, but they didn't believe, and so they had to continue going to war. And they showed the strength of God, and they showed the power of God. Listen, when we walk out of the presence of God, we walk out with His strength and His power, and we are to demonstrate to the world our God is the true God. 
Our God is over every sickness, over every disease, over every bondage, over every addiction. Our God is the true God. That's the reason we go out. We go out to witness. We come in to worship, and we go out to witness. Let me show you another passage about David that I really like. 1 Samuel 18 says, Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain over a thousand, and he went out. Notice these words. And he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved wisely in all his ways, very, and the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. Do you see that? That's exactly what Solomon was saying. My father knew how to do this. And if I'm going to be king, I need to know how to do this too. Now, let me just show you something in, in Scripture in just a moment that's may blow you away. David was a great king. He was a man after God's own heart. But he fell. And all of us know that he fell. Why did he fall? See, when we started this message, we said Solomon asked for wisdom. And we all know he asked for wisdom. But we ought to ask ourselves, why did he ask for wisdom? Okay, David fell. Why did he fall? Does the Bible tell us? Yes, it does. It tells us exactly. I want you to think about these three principles. Coming in and going out. Worshiping and witnessing. Now, 2 Samuel 11, watch this. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings do what? Go out to battle. That David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. David sent everyone else and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at church. David remained in Jerusalem. And then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed, walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. I have one simple question for you. If David had been where he was supposed to have been, would he have ever even seen Bathsheba? No. And the reason was he wasn't doing what he should have been doing, and what he should have been doing was fighting the enemy. Instead of just coming to church, listen to me very carefully. God did not design us to be a reservoir. He designed us to be a river where it's always flowing in, but it's always flowing out. And if you ever stop it from flowing out, you will begin to stink and you will begin to con be contaminated. And that's exactly what I'm, and I'm telling you. When you quit witnessing, when you quit sharing life, when you quit ministering to people, you're headed for a fall. It may not be immorality, but it may be pride, or it may be envy, or jealousy, or malice, or unforgiveness, or resentment, or hate, or a bondage, or addiction. But you're headed for a fall when you quit flowing, allowing the life of God to flow through you. And by the way, if you just flow out and don't flow in, you're going to dry up. You're going to get very, very dry if you're always given and not being refilled. So we have to have both. We have to worship and witness. Both of these things we have to do. Now, flip over to Luke chapter 14. And I want to show you the New Testament picture of this principle. By the way, I appreciate you coming to this service. This is, this is good. I, I know for some of you it's a struggle. For the one you're married to, it's not. <laughs> Luke 
But I appreciate you coming because that this is helping us in the uh, five services. This was our smallest service, and this is the best attendance we've had so far in this service. So thank you very much. All right, Luke chapter 14, verse 15. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out. Notice the words, go out. Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor, the maimed, and the lame, and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. And then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to, what? Come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who are invited shall taste my supper. Now this is called the parable of the great supper. I personally would change that and call it the parable of the great excuses. These are the lamest excuses any person could have ever come up with. These are so lame that what I'd like for us to do just for a moment is talk about these excuses. And let's pretend just for a moment that we're all detectives, all right? And I, and we want to try to figure out these excuses. Just stay with me, all right? The, the first one said, uh, I bought a piece of ground and I need to go look at it. So we're going to call this first case the case of the missing ground. This makes no sense at all to me that you need to go look at land after you buy it. Where is it going? It, it, you know, if you buy 702 um, Harvest Lane, when you get home, it won't be 704 Harvest Lane. It's not going to start, you know, every time you leave. Did you notice our house moves every time we leave? Did you notice that? You know, it's not going to move down the street somewhere. It's not going anywhere. So that's the first thing. It's not going. Second thing that, that makes this a lame excuse is it was, these banquets were held at night. Uh, it, it was dark. Um, flashlights had not been invented. There was no um, Energizer Bunny. There, there was nothing, nothing, no way to look at this land. No car headlights. You know, I, I bought some land and I need to go look at it. Well, it's not going anywhere and it's dark. What are you going to be able to see? And here's the third reason this is a, a lame excuse. Who buys something without having looked at it first? See, I, I've already bought it and now I need to go look at it. Buddy, it's too late. <laughs> It's kind of like the Louisiana Purchase to me. It's, no, I'm, I'm teasing if you're from Louisiana. <laughs> but I don't mean that wrong. I'm just not sure how many swamps they actually told us that it had on it before we bought it. Uh, so, you know, you, you need to look at something before you buy it. So so this excuse, it, it just doesn't hold up. The, the second one is he said, I, I bought some oxen and I need to go test them. Now, remember, again, that, the, that it's dark. So we're going to call this the case of the radioactive oxen. Because apparently these oxen glowed in the dark. Because there's no way to plow at night. Either they glowed in the dark or one had a very shiny nose. And if you ever saw it, you would even say it glowed. 
Because they're, they're just, it's at night. It doesn't make sense. I, I bought oxen, and, and I need to go test them. Now, now, here's the other thing. Again, who buys something without having tested it first? This is like saying, I bought a car, and now I need to go test it. And now I'm going to go take the test drive. Well, it's too late. You've, all, you've already bought the car. Well, and, and this guy bought ten cars because he said, I bought five yoke of oxen. So ten, ten oxide, I guess is plural, oxen. Someone said last night, said, you know how to clean an ox? And I said, no. He said, oxyclean. All right. So anyway, I was going to test that to see if it went over. I bought oxen, and I need to go test them. I want you to think about this. I bought oxen, and I need to go test them. It doesn't make sense. Now, I want us to look again at these three excuses in Scripture. I want you to notice this third one's really amazing to me. The third one, I want you to notice how the wording is different, okay? Now, look at verse 18. Can we put back up verse 18? It says, They all with one accord begin to make excuses. The first said to them, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. Uh, still, uh, another said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Another said, I married a wife, therefore I can't come. <laughs> I mean, look at the difference in wording here. And you know what's amazing is the guy standing there, he says, uh, I, I got married, I can't, they say, oh, okay. <laughs> so th- th- this third case, we're going to call the case of the killer bride. <laughs> yeah, he didn't even ask. <laughs> they go, I, I, I can't come. I, we, we, I just can't. She's not going to let me come. Now, but again, this is a lame excuse, too. Because, and ladies, don't, don't get mad at me, but I just, what man in his right mind is going to give up a banquet and take his chances on what he's going to get from a, a new bride? Now, now, don't get mad at me, but... Most ladies don't come into the marriage knowing how to cook. I know some of you, some of you did. I know some of you knew how to cook when you got married. But some of you thought you did, but you didn't. <laughs> and Debbie will admit this. She, she used to use the, the smoke detector as a meal timer. <laughs> when the smoke detector goes off, the meal is ready. So this is a lame excuse. It just doesn't work. None of these excuses. What? Why? Here, here's my point. Jesus is the one that used these excuses. Why did Jesus use these excuses? Because I think he wanted to show us how absolutely absurd it is for someone to not accept Christ. There is no valid reason to not accept the free gift of God. No reason, no excuse you could come up would be a valid reason not to accept the free gift of God. And there are all sorts of excuses in the, in, in the church, in the church and outside the church. They think about this. Here, I just want to just use one excuse that people use. Have you ever heard this? Well, I don't go to church because there are hypocrites in church. You ever heard that? Well, 
if you're going to if you're going to apply that principle, let me help you a little bit. There are hypocrites at the ball game too. There are hypocrites at the lake. There are hypocrites at the mall. I just want to make there are hypocrites at the bank. There are hypocrites at the at the golf course. There are a lot of hypocrites at the golf course, by the way. <laughs> People who claim to be something that they're not. So if your point is. I'm not going to go somewhere because hypocrites are there. You don't have a valid point unless you apply it across the board. And here's the other thing, too. I'd rather spend a few years in church with hypocrites than eternity in hell with them. Because that's exactly wherever hypocrite's going. Because a hypocrite is someone who professes to be something he is not. He professes to be a Christian, but he's not a Christian. And to throw away your life just because of some hypocrite Christians, some counterfeit Christians, is foolish. To say, well, they're not real, so I'm not going to even try to be real. That's foolish. That's like going, seeing a guy standing at the, at the window with his wallet, throwing out all of his good dollar bills, and you say, what are you throwing your money away for? Well, I saw some counterfeit money, so I'm going to throw away all my good money. So it doesn't make sense for you to say, I'm throwing away my life just because I saw some counterfeit people. There's no valid reason. But, but here's the, Next thing I want to talk about when we talk about excuses, there's no valid reason for you not to witness. See, it's not just unbelievers that make up excuses. Believers make up excuses, too. Here's one that blows me away. It is amazing to me what kind of weather can keep people home from church. It is amazing to me. Look look out the window, and it's just, it's just drizzling. Oh, we better not try to make it to church this morning. Like it's going to flood or something, and you're going to be swept away. Try that excuse next time with your boss. I'm not coming in this morning. Well, how come? It's drizzling. <laughs> we make up all sorts of excuses. Not to, I can't afford to tithe. I don't have time to read my Bible. I don't have time to pray. I don't know how to witness. And I'm going to help you in that next week. Witnessing is the easiest thing in the world for a believer to do. It is the easiest thing in the world. If you don't believe that, you've been deceived by the enemy. It's the easiest thing. And next week, I'm going to teach every one of you how to witness. When you walk out of here, you'll be able to witness to any person. It's that simple. It is so simple. There's only one thing you have to do to be able to witness. I'll tell you that next week. (laughs) So stop making up excuses. Share the heart of God. I want you to hear the heart of God in this story. Hear the heart of God. They're sitting around the table eating with Jesus, and one of them says, Oh, it's going to be so good when we get to heaven, and we're going to get to sit around the table with you all the time. I want you to notice immediately what Jesus' mind goes to. Immediately, Jesus' mind does not go to all the people who are going to be with him in heaven. Immediately, his mind goes to all the people who are not going to be with him in heaven. And an urgency comes up in his voice. And it's just like sitting around a a banquet table like a big Thanksgiving meal or something. And we're sitting around. We're just eating and eating and eating. This is the picture I get. We're eating and eating and eating. And there at the window are starving children with their faces pressed against the window. And we're all eating. And Jesus is looking out the window with tears running down his face. And what he's thinking is, would you please get out from under, get your feet out from under my table and go tell them that they can come in. There's enough for them also. Would you please go tell someone, listen, do you realize, let me make sure I'm saying this right. Do you realize if you're a member of a good church where the word is preached, do you realize how blessed you are? The food that you receive every week when you're a member of a good church. Listen to me. They need the food too. 
They're starving. They're people that you meet, people in your neighborhood, people that you work with. They are starving. And you're coming in here every week, and you're enjoying a banquet and never telling anyone else there's a banquet right over there. Every weekend there's a banquet if you want to go. And here's the other thing I want that, that blows me away. This is what Jesus is saying. Go tell them it's already paid for. The meal is already paid for. There's a reservation in their name in heaven. Every person has a reservation. Go tell them about it. All they've got to do is believe. We need to worship. But we need to start witnessing also. We need to start sharing our faith and telling people about this. What do you do? What do you do when you fall in love with someone? I want you to think about this. There are two things that you do when you fall in love with someone. There's only two things. If you've ever had a friend that's fallen in love with someone, and by the way, again, ladies, please don't get mad at me, but guys, we know when when a guy falls in love with a girl. If you don't know if he loves you or not, we know, because we don't see him anymore. Now, he, he doesn't go bowling anymore. He doesn't. We don't see him anymore. He just disappears. And pretty soon we're like, where's Jim? Where's Jim? Where? Where is Jim? And pretty soon we see Jim standing outside the store at the mall holding a purse. And we know Jim got caught. (laughs) And let me tell you what's wrong with Jim. Here's what happens when Jim falls in love with someone. He only wants to do two things. From that point on, there's only two things he wants to do. He wants to spend all of his time with her. And when he's not with her, he wants to talk about her all the time. He wants to spend his time with her, and he wants to talk about her. Listen to me. We need to fall in love with Jesus. Because when we do, there's two things that we're going to want to do. We're going to want to spend all of our time with him, and we're going to want to talk about him to every person we meet. I want to read you something about how a teacher changed someone's life. Now listen carefully to me. Just listen to this. Don't don't start getting ready to go yet, all right? This is maybe you've heard it before. This is about a, a boy named Teddy Stollard. Teddy Stollard certainly qualified as one of the least. Disinterested in school, musty wrinkled clothes, hair never combed. One of those kids in school with a deadpan face, expressionless, sort of glassy, and unfocused stare. When Miss Thompson spoke to Teddy, he always answered in monosyllables. Unattractive, unmotivated, and distant, he was just plain hard to like. Even though his teacher said that she loved all in her class the same, down inside she wasn't being completely truthful. Whenever she marked Teddy's paper, she got sort of a pleasure out of putting X's next to the wrong answers. And when she put the F's at the top of the page, she always did it with a flair. She should have known better. She had Teddy's records, and she knew more than she wanted to admit about him. The records read like this, first grade. Teddy shows promise with work and attitude, but has a very poor home situation. Second grade, Teddy could do better. Mother is seriously ill. He receives little help at home. Third grade, Teddy is a good boy, but too serious. He is a slow learner. His mother died this year. Fourth grade, Teddy is very slow, but well-behaved. His father shows no interest at all. Well, Christmas came, and the boys and girls in Miss Thompson's class brought her Christmas presents. They piled their presents on her desk and crowded around to watch her open them. Among the presents, there was one from Teddy Stollard. She was surprised that he had brought her a gift, but he had. Teddy's gift was wrapped in brown paper and held together with scotch tape. On the paper were written the simple words, 
for Miss Thompson from Teddy. When she opened Teddy's present, out fell a gaudy rhinestone bracelet with half the stones missing and a bottle of very cheap perfume. The other boys and girls began to giggle and smirk at Teddy's gift, and Miss Thompson at least had enough sense to silence them by immediately putting on the bracelet and putting some perfume on her wrist. Holding her wrist up for the other children to smell, she said, Doesn't it smell lovely? And the children, taking their cue from the teacher, responded with oohs and ahs. At the end of the day, when school was over and the other children had left, Teddy lingered behind. He slowly came over to her desk and said softly, Miss Thompson, Miss Thompson, you smell just like my mother, and her bracelet looks real pretty on you, too. I'm glad you like my present. When Teddy left, Miss Thompson got down on her knees and asked God to forgive her. The next day when the children came to school, a new teacher welcomed them because Miss Thompson had become a different person. She was now a person committed to loving her children and doing things that would live on after her. She helped all the children, but especially the slow ones, and especially Teddy Stallard. By the end of that school year, Teddy had showed dramatic improvement. He'd caught up with most of the students and was even ahead of some. Well, the year ended and she didn't hear from Teddy for a long time. And then one day she received a note that read, Dear Miss Thompson, I will be graduating second in my class. I wanted you to be the first to know. Four years later, another note, Dear Miss Thompson, they just told me I will be graduating first in my class. The university has not been easy, but I like it. I wanted you to be the first to know. And four years later, another note, Dear Miss Thompson, as of today, I am Dr. Theodore Stalin. I wanted you to be the first to know. I'm getting married next month, the 27th to be exact, and I want you to come and sit where my mom would have sat if she were alive. You are the only family I have now. Dad died last year. Love, Teddy Stalin. Well, Miss Thompson went to that wedding, and she sat where Teddy's mother would have sat. She deserved to sit there. She'd done something for Teddy that he could never forget. You see, she had seen something in him that no